We return this evening to our study in salvation using Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30 as our basic framework. And then this evening also reading from 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. And then in 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. From verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Again, let's ask God's help in studying his truth. Most merciful King, the the half has not been taught us of the power and the grace and the goodness that are in Christ Jesus. O God of heaven, then we pray, help us to understand ever more deeply what it means that salvation is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that it is by him that we are saved. And that it is always in connection with him that we enjoy your saving mercies. We thank you, O God, for him. We pray that by your spirit you would teach us more about him. That in your word we might learn these wonders of salvation. These wonders of love which belong to you and which have been bestowed upon us. Lord, bless us for the sake of your son. Amen. Whom God predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, those he also justified. And ultimately, whom he justified, those he also glorified. And the whole of that sequence is in pursuit of the conformity of God's chosen people to the image of Jesus Christ, that his glory might be preeminent in salvation, in the church both in time and then in eternity. 
And we've been trying to work our way through Romans chapter 8 as our basic framework to understand the way in which God in his mercy deals with sinners like us when he calls us into his kingdom and glory. And we've been asking the question then in recent weeks, what lies between justification and glorification in the experience of God's people? Now, I'm really looking forward to getting to glorification because of the way it it ties all these threads together. But we also need to understand that in our experience, we do not jump immediately from justification to glorification, that there are certain things through which we pass. And we have said then that God in his mercy, having called us to Jesus Christ, grants to us that faith and repentance which Christ purchased on the cross. We are converted and being changed, being turned, laying hold upon Jesus Christ, God declares us to be righteous in his sight. And if you remember, on the basis of that justification, on the basis of that cleansing and constituting righteous before him, God then brings us into his family. We are declared and made to be sons of God. And as those who have been adopted, we are then sanctified. Now, in one sense, every Christian is immediately sanctified in the sense that we are immediately, by that process of conversion, set apart to God as his distinctive people. The old translations will talk about the Lord's peculiar people. Uh, And while that uh, still makes some sense, it isn't always the most uh, appropriate sounding phrase. Uh, Sometimes it's more appropriate sounding than you might wish. But the Lord's distinctive people, the Lord's peculiar people, the ones who've been set apart and now belong to him and everything about them declares it. But also there's an ongoing process a becoming more and more like Jesus Christ with a view to that ultimate conformity to him, both in our bodies and in our souls. And it's that that we're beginning to look at then this evening. We have been called. We have been called into union with Jesus Christ. And you think of the imagery that the Bible uses for that union. We are like branches that are now in the vine. And the life that is in the vine flows into us that we might bring forth fruit. We are bound into the building. We are brought into the family. And the sense again and again emphasizes that joined to Jesus Christ, the life that is in him is now also in us. And we are, as those who've been called into union with Christ, we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our souls. He lives in each one of God's people. And so we now belong to this family of God in union with Jesus Christ. And we are increasingly made like the sons we are, Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. We've been adopted into the family, but we're like street urchins who've been brought into the king's household. And now there's some teaching and there's some training and there's some developing and there's some instructing 
It needs to take place so that we can show ourselves increasingly what we are and reflect the glory and the majesty of our heavenly father and our older brother. And so what we are going to see as we continue now thinking of how God sanctifies us and how the Lord uh, preserves us, how saints persevere in, in holiness and how ultimately they are glorified, there is this uh, sense of continuity and, and development and overlap. The, the further on we go, the more you're going to see the connections with what we've said before and the direction in which we're travelling. You'll see how the whole thing is holding together and pulling in the same direction. It's coherent, it's comprehensive, it's compelling, it's wonderful. There's a security in understanding these things. There's an energy in understanding these things. We begin to appreciate what has happened and is happening and will happen in us. And in order to draw our souls out and engage our hearts and grip our consciences and develop our convictions and fill our hearts with hope and with joy and so you've got this uh, language in Romans chapter 8 that those whom God justified these he also glorified and we're thinking well how do we get from here to there and you might recall that when we looked at adoption in 1 John and chapter 3 we already began to touch on this because there's that overlap and that development Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now here's the note of what we call sanctification. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's what we're talking about. And you see how you can't really talk about adoption without then talking about sanctification. It follows on naturally. And, and when we now talk about sanctification in particular, we can't separate it from predestination and from calling and from justification because it's all part of this one coherent whole. It's a package. It fits together. It holds together. It works together. It carries us forwards. The question here then is one of holiness. Now this was God's concern for his people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. When you read in the Old Testament of God's rule and regulation of the life of God's people, what was one of his great reasons for doing this? You shall not be like the nations around about you. So much of the uh, guidance, the law that God gave to his people, the judicial law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law, these things set God's people apart from the godless nations around them. And it was God's intention that it should be so. The way the saints looked and the way they dressed and the way they spoke and the way they lived and the way they worshipped, all of them said, we belong to the living and the true God. And it is just as true in the New Testament, even more so, because now we are, remember, sons of God. We are part of the citizenry of the new Jerusalem. 
We are pilgrims here, but we wear the livery of our king. And so you get language like 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 13 to 16. This is what the apostle says there. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, you hear the notes of glorification coming? Live now in the light of what's lying ahead. As obedient children not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And that's a characteristic requirement. It's, it's Peter's version, if you like, of the put off what belonged to your old life, put on what belongs to your new life in Christ. Don't be conformed to your former lusts, but be holy as God is holy. That is what God has called you to be and to do. And that's what's carrying us then towards 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2. Part of me thought I could just go back to 1 John 3 and verse 3 and redevelop that last statement. Purify yourselves because of this hope just as he himself is pure. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through to 15, covers a lot of bases. And the reason why I want to concentrate on this is because of the way that it holds everything together. There are notes in here that more or less point back to everything we've already said, as well as pointing forward to everything that we are going to say. And I hope it will help us this evening to see the call to increasing godliness in God's people as part of this great sweep, this movement of God's grace in the lives of each one of his people so that we don't isolate it away from the things that support it and feed into it and give it its energy and direction. Neither do we cut it off from the things towards which we're looking. Because I think, again, when we isolate sanctification from Christ and when we don't see it in the whole context, holiness can become dry. It can become uh, uh, sort of cold and, and clinical. It can become a mere matter of do-nots and do's. Whereas, although it has its holy law, although it is a matter of the moral law still written on the hearts of his people, it is a living, breathing, delightful likeness to God in Christ Jesus. And I want that to thrill us. I want us to understand this as a privilege of the people of God. So, let's think about the holiness of of God's people as we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 13 to 15 and we're going to run through a number of different things that we see here and then conclude with two particular points at the end so if you think there's a lot here there is but we're moving quickly and we're not going to to plumb the depths entirely at every point so first of all then the joy of holiness the joy of of holiness. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Do you thank God for holiness? 
Do you thank God that he has set apart a people like us, one another? Do we thank God for each other, that we are called to this life of godliness? Sometimes to to hear people speak about holiness, you think we were being bound up to something rather than liberated for something. You would think that holiness was some kind of condemnation rather than some kind of, of joyful freedom. But we have been set free to serve the Lord God. Do you remember how even in the old covenant, when Israel's been brought up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and the Lord God is about to to state or restate the moral law, how does that declaration begin? I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. These, then, are the laws that God gives. To whom does God give his law, brothers and sisters? To a redeemed people. It's not, here's the law. If you can do these things, I will set you free. But I will set you free so that you can be my people and obey my law. Under sin, you are bound. In Christ, you are set free. We are bound. We are obliged bound in that sense. We're bound to give thanks to God always for you. You're God's free men and women. You're God's liberated people. Paul can rejoice because we're no longer in darkness, but we're in light. We're no longer under the dominion of Satan, but we're now in the kingdom of the Son of God's love. We have been called to holiness And that ought to make us in our souls sing to the praise of the God of our salvation. We should be able to look at one another and say, I thank God for you. You're a free person in Christ Jesus. I thank God that you're no longer in slavery to sin, but you are free for the honour of Christ. My friends, our liberty is no grounds for regret or complaint. We are not the burdened people. We are the people who are free in Christ to serve the God of our salvation. And our status and our prospects ought to be very sweet to us, both as we think of ourselves, as we think of one another, and as we think of sister churches, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. We can give thanks to God because he has redeemed us. We cannot separate this from the fact that God has loved us from before the foundation of the world, that God has chosen us, that God has called us, that God has justified us, and that God will glorify us. This is part of that whole, and it ought to thrill me, and it ought to thrill you. We should give thanks that God is at work in one another for holiness. The joy of holiness, and then the heart of of holiness. How does Paul describe them and us? Brothers beloved by the Lord. Again, you see the continuity. We've already talked about this in connection with predestination. Loved by God from time immemorial, before the world was. God has set his love upon us. God loves us enough to make us holy. Do you think of it like that? That your holiness, the call to live a life that is, is more and more like that of Jesus Christ is because of how much God loves you. He's brought you to himself. He will not leave you dead in your trespasses and sins. He won't leave you in the, the grave clothes from which you've been called forth. 
But no, because you are beloved by God. It's back to that predestinating language. Back to that sovereign determination that God has made. It is the a setting of God's love upon us with his kind purpose. And Paul can give thanks because of what God is doing. Conscious that we are the brothers whom God has loved. And that's why we are what we are. And that's why we do what we do. Then you see the root of that holiness. We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brothers beloved by God, because God from the beginning chose you. Why does the church exist? Why does it exist for holiness? Because God from the beginning chose you. He took you to himself. And the language is of divine desire and delight. Now, Paul isn't saying here that uh, actually God did choose us because we were lovely in ourselves. We know that that is not the case. It wasn't the case for Old Testament Israel. God didn't choose them because they were great and mighty in, in, in number or in stature. We know that God chooses the weak and the foolish things of the world. But nevertheless, there is a deliberate and designing setting of love upon God's people. That's, that's mercy. That's grace. That's wonderful. God has, has made a, a deliberate selection. He has loved us and so chosen us. I can't explain it because I know at least something of what is in my heart. I have no reason why God should love me except for the fact that God loves Paul has already told the Thessalonians this. I remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labour of love, your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brothers, your election by God. He says something similar to the Ephesians in chapter 1 and verse 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Do you see my problem as a preacher if I'm talking about sanctification? Every time I turn to another text, I'm thinking, I could have done that one. But that's also got calling in it. That's also called in Christ by God to be holy from before the foundation of the world. Paul understands how these things hold together. Holiness, my friends, is purposeful. God has chosen us for holiness because he has loved us. It is a, a determination, an election that arises from nothing else than the pure, sovereign, infinite love of the God of all the earth. And then the path of holiness, the path of holiness. God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. For salvation through sanctification. Now again, understand what Paul is saying here. Our sanctification, our increasing holiness, however high we may attain, is not the cause of our salvation. 
Paul doesn't say that God saw your holiness and so he appointed you for salvation, but rather that God in love chose you for salvation through sanctification. There is no salvation apart from sanctification. There is no seeing God without holiness. That's one of the warnings that comes to us in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. That without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. It doesn't matter what you've claimed. It doesn't matter which church you've gone to. It doesn't matter who your dad or your mum are. It doesn't matter what kind of religious contributions you've made. It doesn't matter how many times you've read your Bible. It's not the issue of whether or not you have uh, belonged to a certain congregation, given a certain amount of money, accomplished certain things within the eyes of the world or even in the church, mark you out as some special kind of person. Because if you are not a holy man or woman, you will not see God. You will not come into his presence and enjoy his smile. Sanctification is the way of salvation. All who are saved walk in the ways of righteousness. And the veneer of religion will not save you. If you are not a godly man or woman who is showing your identity as a son of God, by increasing likeness to the Son of God, the firstborn, the only begotten, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There is a root and there is fruit. There is God's saving purpose and the life that he bestows. And from that life that is in Christ, once the branch is bound into the vine, fruit springs forth. And it is fruit like that of Jesus Christ. We have been then set apart to God. It's that beautiful language of the, the vessels in the temple that belong to the Lord himself. We're no longer for a common purpose. We no longer belong to this world. We no longer go in its ways. But rather we are God's men and women. And as such we are made increasingly like Jesus Christ. This is sanctification. It's the process of you or me becoming increasingly holy more and more God-like when we talk about godliness we're talking about God-likeness it's being holy just as he is holy now how is God holy what does the holiness of God look like in a human frame it looks like the Lord Jesus Christ some of you may just about remember a craze that swept through certain Christian circles, I don't know now, 20, 30 years ago. I'm not going to ask whether or not you had one, but there were these little bracelets, WWJD. Anybody remember those? Yeah, some of you? Okay, you're showing your age. <laughs> what would Jesus do? It was gimmicky. It was a bit tacky. It doesn't help if you don't really know who Jesus was and what Jesus did because you can't then answer the question properly. But it's not a bad question, is it? If you know who Christ is, if you know how Christ lived, if you understood that he is the preeminently holy one, how ought I to live? How should I speak in this situation? How should I think about this man or this woman? 
What will holiness look like for me in this fallen world? Well, what would Jesus do? What did his obedience look like? And I don't need to be in precisely the same situations as him. And I'm not laying claim to his particular and distinctive miracles as the incarnate son of God. But he was the man whose ear was awoken morning by morning to hear what God had said. He was a man who delighted to do his father's will. He was the man who was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It came to, he came down upon him and he did not depart. In him power without measure. Walking in the ways of the Lord. And of him it was said through his ministry. Preeminently those points at the beginning. As he takes up his work and toward the end. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and the christian says that's who i want to be like i want the savor of christ i want the likeness of christ i want the pattern of christ in me i want people to hear the echoes of his voice in the things that i say to see glimpses of his light in the life that i lead to see the same commitment to the glory and honour of God, the same willing, cheerful, voluntary spirit of obedience that marks him out in all his dealings with men before his God. The path then of holiness is ongoing and advancing godliness. We are saved by way of sanctification. Who is the agent of holiness? We were chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Holy Spirit. This comes back to this question of conversion. This comes back to the work of the Spirit when you become a Christian. Here you are, dead in your trespasses and sins. You are a spiritual corpse and it is by the Holy Spirit that God comes to you. And the life that is in Christ is worked into you. That though you were then dead, yet now you live together with Christ. And that instinct response of the renewed heart is of faith and repentance by which we close with Christ. But the Holy Spirit doesn't, as it were, throw in life from a distance. He doesn't come and touch us and then back away and say, well, you're a bit gross, you're a bit vile still. I don't want anything more to do with you. No, when the Holy Spirit makes us alive, he takes up residence in our souls. It's like you buying a new house. Yes, it's not everything that you want. Maybe Ashley and Danny would say, well, you know, we've got our new home. We're moving in on Thursday. We're so glad we've got it, but there's a lot of work to do. The decoration isn't great. There are things that are, are still a bit, a bit wrong with it. We need to do a bit of stuff on the brickwork. We need to fix a few things in the, in the roofing. We've got to work a bit on the wiring. There's work to do in the house. But it's our home and we're going to live there and do that work day by day and week by week and month by month until the home begins to reflect our identity. You can see who lives there by the kind of home it is, by the choices we've made, by the impact of our presence on that property. And so it is with salvation. The Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters, has moved in and he will not move out. And he is now restoring and renovating. 
And where there are things that belong to your previous existence that are not pleasing in his sight, he is telling us and working in us not to be conformed to our former lusts. Peter's language. To put off the old man. Paul's language. To be renewed according to the image of Jesus Christ. Again in 1 Thessalonians and, and chapter 5 and verse 23. The Apostle Paul says, Now the, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of peace will sanctify you. The God of peace will work holiness in you. You think of Galatians chapter 5 and those vices that the Holy Spirit hates and resists and roots out. There's a, there's a holy indignation. These things do not belong in the body of those who belong to Jesus Christ, who have been purchased by his blood. And the Holy Spirit will be fighting against them to get rid of them. And in their place, there will be this growing up of that which is truly virtuous, that which is pleasing to the God of heaven. By his mighty operations, the work progresses. Brothers and sisters, that's our confidence. That the Holy Spirit is in us and he is working and we should cooperate with him. Then you have the means of holiness. We've been chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see, the Holy Spirit works faith in us, faith in Jesus Christ. And he brings us to Christ and he keeps us near Christ. And it is through belief in the truth that this process goes on taking place. Do you remember how our Lord Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 and verse 17? Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And brothers and sisters, the truth grasped the truth brought to bear by the power of the holy spirit is the instrument by which we are increasingly made holy as the truth is preached as the word of god comes in its particulars and puts its finger on the sins that you and i keep committing god by his word exposing identifying Stirring up in us grief and shame. Bringing us to new expressed repentance. And telling us, do you see how Christ calls you to live? Do you see how Christ himself lives? And so that put off, put on language. As you read your Bible, when you turn the scriptures pages in the morning or in the evening, whenever you read... Do you ever come across those portions that just seem to peel back your soul? You think, oh God, as I look into the mirror of your word, I find that I am not like Christ. I am not who I should be. I am not what I should be. And how often there are those particular moments. And it's in the providence of God you happen to read those portions that put their finger on today's sins. What a mercy of God. That he doesn't leave enough space between how I behaved a week ago and what I've realised today. I mean, it doesn't have to be a problem, but sometimes it's in that very moment. 
The word of God continues to work. And we believe it. We believe this truth. Because we've grasped it and it's grasping us. And we understand its promises and its warnings. It has this ongoing impact upon us. So that we put off what does not belong. Do you believe what God says about your sin? Do you believe when God says this is sin and it has no place in your life? Do you believe God when he says, I have the power to overcome sin in you? Do you believe God when he says, this pleases me? Do you believe God when he says, here are the virtues, here are the beauties, here are the delights? I love love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now, if I don't believe that, I don't need to worry about that. But if I know that that is what pleases God, if I know and believe that that is the work of his spirit in my heart, then whether it's the preaching or the reading or the meditating or the studying or the wider reading or whatever it may be, I will find that by degrees... God uses the scalpel of the word to cut away that which does not belong. God brings the hammer of the word to break up the hard places in my heart. God brings the whole toolkit of scripture to bear to strip off that which does not belong and to build up that which does. Not apart from me, but working in me. I am not entirely passive in this. Because the Holy Spirit indwells me. That brings us to the the power of holiness. You see, we were called to this by the power of the gospel. Called to this by the power of the apostolic gospel. The Thessalonians knew this. Do you remember how Paul speaks to them in 1 Thessalonians again in verse 5? Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And then in chapter 2 and verse 12, uh, sorry, verse... Thirteen. That's what it is. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And then you can go to verse seven of chapter four, that God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. The power of the gospel, my friends, it was God's call from sin and death to a holy life. It was by the gospel that these Thessalonians turned their back upon dead idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, even Jesus, who is delivering us from the wrath which is to come. There's another text I could have preached. That's sanctification. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and then there's glory to wait for his son from heaven. This gospel then, it has come with spiritual power. You've been gripped by it, haven't you? 
you're a Christian, you know you can no longer live the way the world lives and you don't want to. You have new life in Christ. There's joy and there's peace and there's vigour in being one of the people of God. He is now your delight. You've heard his voice and you cannot be what you were before. You're not a dead man. You've been brought out of the grave. The grave clothes have been put aside. You've been set free for the glory of God. And by that mighty call, remember Ephesians, Paul telling us that the same power by which Christ was raised from the dead is the power by which you've been raised from the dead. That's the reality of the gospel in us. We are alive with Christ. We belong to him. And that gospel reality is what is at work in our souls as the spirit moves and as the word is brought to bear. We're nearly there. The end of holiness. The end of holiness. Where's it all going? To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an end point. There's a destination. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on this because this is what Romans 8.30 calls glorification. But you understand that this is what it's all working towards. Now understand again how this operates. What is it that God has saved us for? It is that we should be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The ultimate end point of salvation is that each one of God's people, body and soul, should be entirely like Christ, sinless within, perfect without, glorified together with him. And you think about the heights of that destination. And then you think about where we are when God finds us dead in our trespasses and sins, vile and foul and weak and needy. And God raises us out of the pit. God sets our feet upon the rock. God lifts our eyes and says, in effect, that's what we're working towards. And brothers and sisters, every step that you and I take in the path of holiness carries us a degree closer to the ultimate purpose of God to make us like Jesus Christ in his risen perfection. That's what sanctification is. Do you remember what we said just in passing, I think, last time? That once you're alive, there's a sense in which you see this as a great gulf. God sees it as the finishing touches. You've already got the life that's in Christ. Just by degrees now, we're working you closer and closer toward that final destination. There's only a few more days left. There's only a few more things left to do. There's life in you. And the purpose of that life is that it should blossom into the glory that belongs to Jesus Christ. And again, Paul's delighted already to talk to them about these things. God did not appoint us to wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Or 2 Thessalonians and verse 10. Christ is coming. Chapter 1, I think, verse 10. Yes, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. 
You see how this is now fitting in. Those whom he justified, those he also glorified. How do we get from justified, declared righteous in Christ, to glorified? What is our experience in between? It is that of being made more and more, day by day, moment by moment, step by step, like the Jesus Christ to whom we will be finally and ultimately conformed. We are going to participate in Christ's glory it's all his glory but we obtain it we enter into it we share it with him and because his glory becomes ours because we participate and enter in whose glory is glorified (laughs) who is seen to be the firstborn among many brothers Whose majesty is revealed as preeminent? Who will have all the praise and all the glory of heaven? It is the Lamb whose glory his people will share. When the Christ stands before his beloved Father and says, Here am I, and the ones, the people, the flock that you have given me. This is my family. They have been joined to me. I have kept them. I have watched over them, I have shepherded them, and now having prayed for them, they have come to be with me where I am. And the glory that is mine is now theirs. And oh, my Father, how that magnifies your grace in me. And oh, my God, how that exalts your holy name. And my friends, that's what we're a part of. That's what's happening to Christians here this evening. And that leads to a call to holiness. Therefore, brothers, verse 15, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, this is vitally important. Having heard all of this, Paul does not say to these Thessalonians, God's at work, and isn't it wonderful? So sit back, relax, and wait for it all to happen. No, Paul says, these things being so, therefore, my brothers, those of you who are beloved by God, you stand fast. You hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. You see, sanctification is not a passive process. (coughs) Sanctification is vigorous. It is active. It engages all the faculties of our redeemed humanity. The person who says, I'm a Christian and I'm not bothered, is probably not a Christian. I'm a Christian and holiness doesn't matter to me. I'm a Christian, but I want to hold on to this part of my old sinful life. I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be what God calls me to be. My friends, that's not Christianity. Because if you're alive in Christ, you want to be what Christ is. If you belong to God, you want to be holy as he is holy. If you're a child of God, then what it looks like is you holding fast 
holding on to the truth, planting your feet and saying, I will not be moved away from the truth of God as it is in Christ. And I've got a grip upon the things that God's servants have said, and I will not let it go. This is the truth I believe. These are the words that I know. This is the God that I serve. This is the path that I take. This is the joy that I have received. What did Paul say to the Philippians? My beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who is working in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. We don't work so that God might work. And we don't not work because God has begun to work. God is at work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The word of God has been given to us. God, by his power, is moving in our souls. And as a result, we strive. We labour. We hold fast to the truth and we press toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. My friends, the life of union with Christ is a vigorous life. Outwardly, we may be fading and failing. The outward man is perishing. But the inward man, that is being renewed day by day. The longer we go on, the more vigorous our spirit should become. Our bodies may be fading and failing. We may regret the, the, the lack of capacity that is in them as the years pass by. But even as the body declines, the soul begins to yearn. Oh, for more of God. Oh, for more of holiness. Oh, that I had more strength and more grace and more gifts that I might serve him more entirely. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, part of the build-up to Romans 8. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And that doesn't mean hoping that we'll walk. It doesn't mean expecting God to treat us as these little puppet creatures making us dangle and jangle. No, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you may obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but you as people who belong to God in Christ present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. I'm running out of time. Just those two points briefly. Because this is compelling. This is comprehensive. This is coherent. Do you feel its force? Do you feel how it all fits together? 
to begin to see more and more where you are and the the holy impetus that is at work in you and how the current of God's divine purpose is carrying you forward and the glory that lies ahead. Do you understand now why Paul begins to, to use that athletic imagery? Now, we said this morning in the adult Bible class, didn't we? You know, we live in a world that's given up on winning. Winning isn't every. Winning doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, if Christ hadn't been interested in winning, would we have been saved? He had to triumph over sin and death and hell on the grave. Was the apostle concerned about winning? Yes. I'm stretching out that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold upon me. My friends, this doctrine, this teaching, this theology, this is enlivening, this is engaging, this is encouraging. I know what's happened to me. I know what's happening in me. I know where I'm going. And all my holy desires are now taken up to be the man or the woman that God has called me to be. My friends, it's lifting our hearts and it should Why? Because God is concerned for our holiness. And if there were no other reason for our desiring to be holy as God is holy, it could simply be this, that God says, you be holy. This is the richest gift that God can bestow upon us, that we should be like his son, called into his family and conformed to his image. It is our high privilege that we should be godly, that we should be what God is. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It's our privilege and our pleasure to be holy. God is concerned for our holiness, and so we should be concerned for our holiness. Holiness is your birthright. Holiness is your birthmark. Holiness is not something a Christian has to be. It's something a Christian gets to be. You can be like Christ. You can be more like God. You can please your Father in heaven. It's your birthright to be purified just as he is pure. To purify yourself. And it's your birthmark. How do I know that you're a Christian? When someone stands before the church and testifies to the grace of God in, our li- in their lives, how do you know it's true? You listen. You watch. You smell. Is that the savour of Jesus Christ? Are those clean, pure words Has the blasphemy gone from their lips? Has the unrighteousness begun to be removed from their lives? Do I see a man or woman, younger or older, fighting toward godliness, fighting against sin? Sometimes it's difficult. It's the pastor of the church. I want to make a judgment of charity. Someone says, I'm a Christian. It's wonderful. Why are you treading water? Why are you drawing back? 
Why are you holding off? Where's the zeal? Notice I don't say where's the activity necessarily. But where's the love for God and for his people? Where's the eagerness for holiness? Where's the attachment to God's words and to God's works, to God's will, to God's ways, to God's day, to God's service, to God's people? It's our birth mark. Paul says, I know who the believers are. In Thessalonica, I remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labour of love, your patience of hope. When I think about you, when I see you, when I hear of you, when I smell for the savour of Christ, I know who you are. Because you're like the people in Antioch. The believers were first called Christians in Antioch. Because they were like Christ, they were with Christ, they were about Christ. They spoke of him, they delighted in him, they followed him. And their lives were marked by likeness to Jesus Christ. What is a Christian? It is someone who's being saved through sanctification. Someone who is wholeheartedly engaged in killing sin and vice and cultivating godliness and virtue. Someone committed to honouring God before men and angels, glorifying Christ now and always. Not a perfect man. Not a perfect woman, not yet, but striving to be, with their eye upon the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Saying, in effect, I am not what I want to be, but thank God I am not what I was. Praise my Saviour, I am not yet what I one day shall be be my friends the space between justification and glorification is filled with growing likeness to christ the sons of god grow and mature to become more and more like him